and it's a huge pleasure for me to introduce Susan James, who will be giving the 108th Presidential Address of the Society this evening. Uh, Susan is well known to all of you. Uh, she's the Professor at Birkbeck College here in London, Professor of Philosophy at Birkbeck College here in London. And her philosophical interests range widely, but she's particularly well known for her work in the philosophy of the social sciences, feminism, and the early modern history of philosophy. And as far as the last of these is concerned, she's known more particularly still for her superb work on Spinoza, of which there will be further evidence this evening. The Society will follow the usual format. Um, Susan will speak for up to an hour, and then we'll have a short break, and we'll try to make that break as short as possible for coffee or tea. And then there'll be an opportunity for questions and answers through to about 7.15 p.m. So without further ado, I hand over to Susan. So thank you, Adrian, for such a kind introduction. I'm honoured, of course, to have been invited to be this year's president of the Aristotelian Society, and I'd like to thank the committee for appointing me, and I look forward to seeing many of you at the Society's <laughs> meetings throughout the year. It's also a great honour to be speaking to you today about, the, about our relation to, to the environment and the way it bears on our freedom. But one suggestion before I begin, uh, so as not to talk for too long, I've revised some passages of the circulated draft of the paper. So when I get to those, if you have the circulated paper in front of you, you may find it easier to just listen. You don't need to be reminded that greenhouse gases are accumulating, sea levels rising, and weather patterns becoming more violent. Some of the gravest threats to our way of life are undoubtedly environmental, and they've in part been brought on by our own activities. Yet, as our individual and collective attitudes attest, we're finding them difficult to confront. As individuals, we can't see what to do about them. Still worse, we've so far been unable to address them collectively. Even modern states, with all their power, haven't managed to implement policies that might make our ways of life sustainable. These terribly familiar threats pose political challenges, but they also set us a philosophical test since our capacity to deal with them will partly depend on how we view the threats themselves and thus how we assess any remedies we're offered. Part of our difficulty is that among people who live in the wealthier parts of the world, an unwillingness to embrace environmentally friendly measures is sometimes grounded on the conviction that they demand an unacceptable sacrifice of liberty. Our liberty, for instance, to choose how much we travel, to shop without regard to air miles, to live in brightly lit cities, and so on, in a seemingly endless list of privations. An environmentally sustainable way of life seems to be exceptionally damaging to our freedom. No surprise, then, that we drag our feet. As long as we view the problem in these terms, we face a stark dilemma. Either we continue to put our ways of life in danger, or we try to reconcile ourselves to diminished levels of liberty. But we may also wonder whether this is the only way to characterise our options. Is the conception of freedom presupposed in this outlook the only one available to us? Must we envisage an environmentally friendly way of life as one in which we lose freedom? Or might we somehow come to see it as liberating? Well, even posing this question will probably make you sigh as images of living in yurts and growing vegetables <laughs> swim before your eyes. But perhaps we shouldn't dismiss it. Confronted by our attachment to a view of freedom that puts our way of life in danger, it may not be a bad idea to consider whether we are working with our fullest and most productive understanding of liberty. Mm -hmm. 
So following that line of thought, I'm going to offer a Spinoza's defence of the claim that learning to live within the constraints imposed by our natural environment is an integral aspect of living freely, and that insofar as we fail in this task, we become subject to a form of servitude. Rather than damaging our freedom, the process of struggling to release ourselves from the destructive powers of natural forces can enhance it. Needless to say, the Spinoza's position I'm going to explore doesn't provide immediate solutions to our environmental problems. How could it? Instead, so I'll suggest, it provides us with an opportunity to investigate an ambitious picture of what freedom can amount to and of the traits we need to cultivate in order to enjoy it. It is, in effect, an invitation to try to put a Spinozist vision to work and see if we can use it to ameliorate the unattractive dilemma I've outlined. According to Spinoza, people can be so deeply mistaken about the nature of liberty that they will, as he puts it, fight for servitude as if for freedom. The question is whether we too may unwittingly be falling into this trap when we resist efforts to accommodate ourselves to nature on the grounds that doing so will render us less free. Let me set out some of the central features of Spinoza's conception of freedom and very briefly put them in context. Spinoza's analysis of liberty shares the central commitments of the republican conception of freedom that was popular in the United Provinces during his lifetime, a conception that in turn drew heavily on Roman law. At the heart of this view lies the assumption that you live freely when you're not subject to the power of another agent who can treat you as they choose. So, to take the stock example, a master possesses the freedom to do what he likes with his slaves, and it's the fact that they're subject to his power that makes them unfree. Their <coughs> vulnerability constitutes their servitude, regardless of whether the master treats them well or badly. Conceived like this, freedom and servitude come in degrees. For example, a chattel slave will be less free than a citizen of a democracy who is nonetheless subject to her employer. Equally, some forms of freedom may be more valuable than others. Freedom from chattel slavery is normally less bad than, sorry, more bad, less bad than freedom from a limited dependence on one's employer. Yet again, some forms of unfreedom are less present than others. A chattel slave whose master treats her well is as unfree as a fellow slave who is beaten every day, though the quality of her servitude is not as oppressive. Through all these kinds of variations, freedom consists in being able to sustain the capacity to live as one wants, rather than as somebody else wants one to live. Now, because Republican theorists have traditionally been concerned with political liberty, their interests have tended to focus on the relations between individual people and on those between individuals and states. And furthermore, this set of concerns is reflected in their formulations of what freedom is. For example, Republicans standardly claim that the distinction between freedom and servitude lies in the difference between being able to act in accordance with your own arbitrium or will and being subject to the will of another. What renders an agent unfree is subjection to the will of somebody who can, with impunity, treat them as they choose. Now, this formulation makes freedom a function of relationships between agents who possess wills. And it's implicitly assumed that, at least among finite things, this condition restricts the domain of liberty. Putting aside non-human animals, who are sometimes held to be capable of volition, we're left with individual humans and entities such as states in which law or convention determine how the will of individuals is to be collectively expressed. Living freely, living in accordance with one's own will, 
is thus mainly construed as a capacity of human beings. The same assumption is implicit in a second Latin formulation of the Republican position, this time the claim that one is free insofar as one is sui juris, or able to act in accordance with one's own right. According to this view, freedom only extends to things that possess jus, or right. And once again, it's widely agreed that this is primarily a feature of human beings. One person can render another unfree by arbitrarily suppressing the second person's right to act in accordance with their own will. And the same applies to some associations, such as states or households. Beyond this, however, few, if any, finite things are capable of living sui juris, or freely. So, Republicans mainly regard freedom as a human trait. But one feature of their analysis sits uneasily with this outlook. To live freely, they repeatedly argue, one must be protected from the arbitrary power of other agents. And when one loses this protection, one loses liberty. One way of being unfree is to be vulnerable to another person. However, if we focus on this formulation of liberty, there seems no reason to assume that humans and human associations are the only things that can reduce our freedom. After all, the world is full of viruses, gases, torrents and hurricanes which exercise their power over us with impunity. Well, why shouldn't we describe our vulnerability to them as a form of servitude? In this respect, then, the Republican view invites us to envisage freedom as dependent on our relationships with non-human as well as human things. To live freely, it suggests, is to be protected against all arbitrary power, regardless of its source, and the more we fail to meet this condition, the less free we become. Reflecting on this proposal, one may feel that it just sets the bar too high as well as making unalloyed freedom impossible to attain, it points in the direction of a way of life so cautious and risk-averse as to be the very opposite of free. Well, perhaps these presumed implications help to explain why few writers within the Republican tradition attempted to theorise nature as the domain of freedom, and why most concern themselves only with political liberty. In Spinoza, however, we find an exception. The arguments of his ethics and his two political works provide a metaphysical basis for a more expansive conception of liberty that nevertheless retains the essential features of this republican view. So let me now sketch this Spinozist position. Nature, Spinoza argues, contains an infinity of finite individuals, yoked together by an overarching system of causes and effects, and continually interacting with one another. This pattern of interrelationships is determined by the power of each individual to maintain itself in existence, or as the ethics puts it, to persevere in its being. How an individual perseveres in its being or exercises its power varies from one kind of thing to another. But despite these variations, we can think of nature as a field of interacting individuals where the powers through which individuals maintain themselves are constantly at work. Each individual does what it can to remain in existence as its environment alters until something external destroys it. Among Republican theorists, the ability to exercise one's own power is, as we've seen, traditionally identified with the notion of being sui juris, or able to act in accordance with one's own right, just as being dependent on the power of another is identified with being subject to their right. Reiterating a sort of version of this view, Spinoza claims, and I hear I'm quoting, that the natural right of each individual extends as far as their determinate power. 
Once we allow that individual things continue to exist by exercising their power to persevere in their being, it's a short step to the claim that in exercising its power, an individual exercises its right. In doing what it's empowered to do by virtue of being the thing it is, it acts rightfully, so that, as Spinoza puts it, everything a man does in accordance with the laws of his nature, he does by the sovereign right of nature, and he has as much right against other things in nature as he has power. Now, in the human sphere, this conclusion has very startling implications. Here's Spinoza again. As the wise man has the supreme right to do everything that reason dictates, so the ignorant and weak-minded have the supreme right to do everything that appetite urges. But the equation of right with power has a no less striking effect on the way we think about non-human things, since they too can be said to exercise their power to persevere in their being by right. For instance, if a plant exercises its power to continue to exist by moving towards the sun, then it does so rightfully. So adopting the Republican formulation that we've already explored, we can say that each of these things acts in accordance with its own right. And as we've also seen, this is what it is to act freely. Insofar then, as an individual of any kind exercises its own right, it acts freely. And since any individual strives in this fashion for as long as it exists, any existing thing must be at least a bit free. We have here, I think, the beginnings of a comprehensive analysis of freedom and servitude that extends to all finite things. But it's still not clear what the notion of acting in accordance with your own power or right really amounts to. What sort of power qualifies a thing as active and hence constitutes its own right? Well, we act, Spinoza explains, when, and here I'm quoting again, when something happens in us or outside us of which we are the adequate cause. By contrast, we are acted on when something happens or something follows from our nature of which we are only the partial cause. In the ethics, these definitions are introduced to throw light on the character of human freedom, but they apply quite generally. The more a thing affects the external things it encounters, the more it acts or exercises its right, and the more free it is. Correspondingly, the more it's affected by external things, the more it's acted on, and the greater is its unfreedom or servitude. An individual's power to act is therefore constituted by its own causal efficacy, though that in turn is a complex notion. It has a quantitative dimension, as when, for example, one kind of stone has a greater power than another to resist the blows of a hammer. It has a qualitative dimension, as when a plant has the power to turn to the sun but not to survive a hard frost. Furthermore, and as Spinoza repeatedly emphasises, an individual's power to act varies with the sustainability of that power. So, for instance, as their names indicate, short-lived plasma cells have less power to persevere in their being than long-lived plasma cells, and they're consequently, in this respect, less free. Now, because an individual's power to act has these various aspects, it's not always at all clear or easy to determine when one thing acts on another. No one has yet determined, Spinoza reminds us, what bodies can do. Perhaps we can hazard that a plant is acted on when it's killed by a frost, and a child is acted on when it's weakened by a virus. But even if these particular examples aren't convincing, Spinoza has nevertheless outlined an analysis of freedom and servitude that, by contrast with most republican interpretations of liberty, extends throughout the realm of nature. The continual interplay of individuals' rights or powers 
expresses their changing levels of freedom and servitude. And this is going to be as true of soup ladles, plants or electricity grids as it is of human beings. So Spinoza's analysis of freedom is by no means confined to the human sphere. But like his fellow Republicans, he is especially interested in human freedom and thus in what it is for humans to act and be acted on. As he explains, the character of our human power to persevere in our being reflects the kind of things we are and consequently it has an intellectual dimension. We humans act, he argues, insofar as we have adequate or true ideas. And we're acted on insofar as our ideas are confused or inadequate. To quote the ethics, insofar as our mind has adequate ideas, it necessarily does certain things, it acts. And insofar as it has inadequate ideas, it necessarily undergoes certain things. Now, implicit in these rather gnomic claims is the general idea that what gives us our distinctive power to affect external things is our grasp of the relationships at work within the natural domain of which we are a part. In our human case, it's by understanding the powers of individual things and the patterns of their interactions that we become most active and best able to protect ourselves against servitude. So just as a plant has a particular way of manifesting the power that belongs to it, so too do we. The more we are guided by adequate ideas, the more we act for ourselves, as opposed to being determined by things outside us. Developing that line of thought, Spinoza describes the process of acquiring and using our adequate ideas as reasoning, so that it's through reasoning that we manifest our power to act. This shows us where we should look in order to get a better idea of the nature of human freedom. But what is it exactly to reason or use our adequate ideas, and thus to act in accordance with our own power or right? It's tempting to assume that Spinoza conceives of reasoning as a self-contained and self-validating kind of thinking that operates something like this. Suppose you already have some true or adequate ideas, and from these premises you derive a set of conclusions. The causes of this operation, the adequate ideas that constitute the premises, together with the exercise of reason that enables you to infer one conclusion from another, are in your mind, and your commitment to them isn't indebted to the way that external things affect you. You see why the premises are true and how the conclusions follow from them, and you actively derive each step of the argument from its predecessor. When you reason in this fashion, you determine your own thoughts and rather than being acted on by other things, you act. Both the ethics and the theologico-political treatise offer some textual support for an interpretation along those lines. But if reasoning is construed in this fashion, it's not obvious how it will make us more active and less vulnerable to the power of external things. For example, reasoning may teach me that A follows from B, but I may still not be motivated or able to do anything about it. What we need is to see how reasoning constitutes our power to act. And for this, I think we first need to take account of Spinoza's claim that our experience of acting and being acted on are affective. Now, as Spinoza presents it, much of our everyday behaviour is determined by the way that external things act on us. In our ordinary encounters with external things, the way they act on us causes us to experience them as lovable or frightening or whatever it might be, and that in turn prompts us to respond to them. They subject us to their power, and this, in a sense, renders us passive. 
When we reason, however, the situation changes. According to Spinoza, there's something tremendously satisfying or pleasurable about the process of thinking with adequate ideas, which, as well as breeding intellectual conviction, is manifested in what he calls animositas, a desire or determination to do what reason dictates. So reasoning or understanding isn't just a matter of seeing how one thing follows from another, but also of acting on our knowledge or putting it into practice. And furthermore, this is our characteristically human way of exercising our own power to persevere in our being. It's what it is for us to act as opposed to being acted on, and thus what it is for us to manifest our freedom. As Spinoza sums it up, a free man is led by the dictate of reason alone, and the more we reason, the more freely we live. So this process of becoming more active and free has two inseparable aspects. On the one hand, it's a matter of extending our rational knowledge of the powers of individual things and their resulting patterns of interaction. And that's a project that demands intellectual insight and the capacity to overcome prejudice and a whole host of intellectual virtues. But on the other hand, it is also a matter of putting our knowledge into practice or extending our ability to live in accordance with it. And for this, we need both the practical ingenuity to counteract passive affects and the resourcefulness to devise ways of life that protect us from arbitrary power. Since, as Spinoza points out, it's perfectly possible to be convinced by an argument without being attracted by its conclusion, these two aspects don't always come together. Both have to be worked at. So acting tests our practical as well as our theoretical ingenuity, and it's only by cultivating both dimensions of our power that we can succeed in enlarging our freedom. So liberating ourselves is a matter of creating and sustaining ways of life that reflect our surest knowledge and within which we are secured against servitude. But one of the first truths that we need to grasp in order to pursue this goal is that as individuals we have comparatively little power. Although we correctly attribute power or right to individual human beings, the right we're referring to there is so slight and fragile as to be, Spinoza says at one point, almost a fiction. Moreover, the only way to significantly increase it is to combine forces with other things, and of all existing things, the most useful to us are, in Spinoza's considered opinion, other human beings. If two men unite and join forces, he argues, then together they have more power than either alone. And the greater the number of people who combine in this way, the more powerful they will be. Now, at first glance, this seems a tremendously unpromising claim. After all, people who live in communities often find themselves subject to factions or officials who reduce their freedom, and shared ways of life can be, as we know, enormously oppressive and frustrating. Spinoza doesn't deny the force of these objections, but he responds to them in what is, I think, a thoroughly republican style. Of course, communities may fail to generate worthwhile forms of freedom, but they are nevertheless our only chance. The challenge is therefore to devise collective ways of life that do in fact enhance our liberty by protecting us from arbitrary power. Picking up this gauntlet, Spinoza outlines two types of association, each designed to secure a way of life in which people can live freely. The first is an idealised and fictional community whose members each possess an exceptional level of rational knowledge together with the understanding of how to live as it dictates. Each person recognises that the optimal way to maintain and extend their power or freedom is to ensure that others have no motive for disempowering them. 
and each recognises that the way to achieve this goal is to commit to a way of life that is equally advantageous for all. Furthermore, each knows how to do this, how to treat the others with unfailing justice, honesty and kindness, and each therefore refrains from exercising arbitrary power over anyone else. As a consequence, each is able to embrace the effects that others have on them as contributions to their own power or right and enhancements of their freedom. Now taken together, these people constitute a community that qualifies as an individual in its own right, a body politic whose power to act derives entirely from the power of its individual members. Other than its members' commitment to upholding norms from which they all benefit, the collective has no further power to maintain itself. So that if, hypothetically, its members were to stop cooperating, the collective would collapse. As things are, however, their actions give rise to powers that none of them individually possess, including the power to sustain a maximally free way of life. As free individuals, they contribute to a free community, and the free community, in turn, upholds their individual liberty. Spinoza is clear that we can imagine such an ideal republic, but not actually achieve it. The most that we can actually achieve is a different form of association, namely the state. The two forms of association have the same aim, just as the goal of a community of the wise is to maximise freedom, so the point of the state is to ensure, as far as possible, that people are able to develop and live by their rational understanding. As the quotation on page 13 in the circulated version of the paper concludes, the end of the state is really freedom. But the conditions in which these two types of association pursue their goal diverge sharply. The architects of a community of the wise contrast to the cooperative commitments of its members, whereas the state, as Spinoza sees it, is an arena of agonistic conflict where agents engage in unending struggle, in which they often try to subject other people to their arbitrary power, and in which sovereigns and subjects have to be protected from their own short-sightedness. So various tools are needed to uphold freedom in these circumstances, of which the foremost, I think, Spinoza believes, is institutional design. The creation of laws and political systems that both constrain individuals to uphold conditions in which they're protected from arbitrary power and allow them to use their understanding to live increasingly freely. In the model republics he sets out in the political treaties, these ends are largely achieved by means of political inclusion. The best way to protect a community from arbitrary power is to ensure that constitutional and policy decisions are made by large and relatively diverse assemblies in which many groups are represented and vested interests cancel each other out. Nevertheless, since the symbiosis between state and individual is always less than complete, so too is freedom. The threats to liberty that arise from within are never entirely or conclusively overcome, and the task of keeping them at bay requires continual ingenuity and attention. Discussing these problems, Spinoza sometimes gives the impression that they can only be dealt with by a ruling elite which uses the law to keep the mob at bay. For example, he sometimes speaks deeply contemptuously of the vulgus, as he calls it, the ordinary people whose members are bent on flouting the law and exercising arbitrary power over others, and who, when they join forces, destabilise the polity. <coughs> But this impression is misleading, I think. As Spinoza also indicates, the deficiencies that are here attributed to the vulgus are ones that, to varying degrees, we all share. In the first place, we all suffer from the insufficiency of our understanding. 
we often don't know enough about the causes and effects of our interactions to be sure when we are acting and when we are not, how far we are exercising our own power or right, and how far we are being acted on by external things. In addition, even when we have a theoretical grasp of what's going on, we may not know how to live by it. For example, we may not know how to counteract our passive affects or how to make our shared knowledge collectively compelling. So the task of the state is to try to offset the damaging effects of these forms of ignorance, which may of course occur separately or together. Confronted by individuals who suffer from both forms at once, a state may make it possible for them to live as though they were more powerful and active than they are by protecting them against the arbitrary power of other agents and curbing their power to exercise arbitrary power over others. The state, we could say, carries the burden of protecting them from arbitrary power in the face of their own passivity so that there's a sense in which their political liberty both outweighs but also constitutes their individual freedom. Spinoza is also interested in individuals who suffer mainly from the second form of lack of understanding. He discusses the case of comparatively wise people who live under a badly designed law and can foresee its enslaving effects and may very well be able to envisage more liberating legal arrangements. They know how the law could be improved and they're liable to find themselves torn between conforming to it on the grounds that it's part of a legal system that protects them against arbitrary power and resisting it precisely because they think it will increase the exercise of arbitrary power. A familiar situation. But what should they do? Spinoza isn't a principled opponent of political resistance, but he does emphasise the risks it runs. We know from experience, he argues, that revolutionaries often turn out to be unable to carry their ideas through, and they're liable to destroy more freedom than they create. So bringing that cautious attitude to bear on the wise person's dilemma, Spinoza reminds us that Although the wise people know how they could, in principle, produce a freer and more active way of life, they don't have the power to put their knowledge into practice by making the laws that they imagine a political reality. And since the measure of their understanding isn't what they can envisage in the way of a free way of life, but what they can actually do to realise it, then their lack of practical know-how acts as a break on their freedom. When the state coerces them into obeying the law, it protects its own freedom and it may to some extent protect theirs. But the fact that neither party is able to take advantage of the wise people's potentially liberating knowledge reveals the limits of each party's power and freedom. The state lacks the power to extend its freedom by drawing on the insights of its wiser citizens and its citizens lack the freedom to get their insights translated into political policy. The point I want to draw out here is that as both these case studies indicate, freedom as Spinoza conceives it is a practical political achievement. In order to realise it, states and individuals have to be alive to the demands of understanding but they must also appreciate the need to compensate for and adapt to the lack of it. To live freely, we must learn to live together in a shifting social landscape, where the threat and the reality of arbitrary power is never absent, and our power to combat it must continually take new forms. Now, let me now suggest uh, in the last section of this talk how the model of political freedom that I've just outlined might furnish a broader conception of environmental politics. Spinoza's interest in political freedom is driven by his conviction that states and the individuals who live in them are mutually vulnerable. 
Nothing poses a greater threat to the power of a state than its own members. And nothing is better placed to reduce individuals to subjection than a state. At the same time, states and their members are mutually dependent. While their relations can be treacherous and destructive, their capacity to respond to one another gives them a tremendous combined potential to create free ways of life. When Spinoza discusses the freedom of states, his thoughts are therefore mainly turned inward to the people who live in them. Of course he's aware that states exist among other kinds of individuals whose powers outstrip their own, and as we've seen, he's committed to the view that a state's freedom can be affected by its relations with non-human things. But to make his analysis of freedom more complete, we need to address the implications of these views and consider how states can protect themselves and their members from the arbitrary power of the natural environment. A distinctive feature of many non-human natural things is that they are, as far as we know, unable to adapt to us. While states may be able to negotiate with other states, and by this means produce yet more powerful individuals, there is no negotiating, for example, with the sea or the weather. Confronted by forces such as these, a state must either try to master them or alter its own way of life so that they no longer diminish its power to live freely. Following the first strategy, one might, for example, hold back the sea by building a dike, and I guess that might have been at the top of Spinoza's mind. And following the second, one might move a city to higher ground. As a very firm exponent of the view that individuals of all kinds have the right to do anything in their power, Spinoza endorses the first of these strategies without blenching. Humans, he argues, have the right to use other natural things for their own ends and they're under no obligation to hold back. For example, they may eat other animals when they can. To think otherwise, he remarks, is to fall prey to unmanly compassion. But this encouragement to subdue the earth comes with a warning. Since we're prone to overestimate our own power to act, our efforts to consolidate and extend this power are very liable to backfire. We need to learn to appreciate the extent of our vulnerability and proceed cautiously, always taking account of the limits of our understanding and of our physical weakness. In some cases, we may be able to subject natural things to our power without at the same time endangering our freedom. But where we can't, the only way forward is to adopt the second strategy and try to defeat the arbitrary powers of external things by adapting our way of life to the ineluctable forces of nature. Individually and collectively, we can either employ these two strategies to ensure as far as possible that we're not arbitrarily acted on, or we can try to resign ourselves to a degree of servitude. It may seem that the second and the more concessive of these strategies counsels nothing but resignation. To adapt ourselves to greenhouse gases, rising sea levels and so on, we shall, after all, have to give up the freedoms that we care about and live in yurts. Spinoza doesn't rule out the possibility that this may turn out to be the most we can achieve. Perhaps, in order to survive, we shall have to live in ways that now strike many of us as acceptably, unacceptably impoverished. Nor does he disagree that communities who have to live like this are liable to be comparatively miserable. Learning to counteract the negative passions that external things arouse in us is, he acknowledges, extremely difficult. It's true that by using the ancient forms of training that Foucault examines, for instance, in the care of the self, some people may acquire the power to remain active and unruffled in the face of vastly more restricted existences. But many of us can be expected to suffer from regret and disappointment 
together with the resentment, fear and anger that these passions are liable to cause. Living freely will consequently become harder and the obstacles that communities have to deal with in order to sustain liberating ways of life will increase. However, while he acknowledges these sombre possibilities, Spinoza is not, in fact, an advocate of resignation. On the contrary, our freedom, after all, consists in exercising our power to live in the light of the surest knowledge that we possess, by cultivating our understanding in all the ways we can. And to abandon this task is to succumb to the power of external things. We should therefore continue to subdue the earth as long as we can safely do so. And where we need to adapt to it, we should use our understanding to create alternative ways of life that we can enter into cheerfully. If the prospect of life in a yurt fills us with a sense of desolation, well, then we must exercise all our power to devise alternatives that answer to our knowledge of our environment, but are also within our collective power to embrace. Since there's no telos or limit to our efforts to persevere in our being, and since we don't yet know what the body can do, nothing in our own power gives us grounds for abandoning the attempt to live more freely. It's important here that because Spinoza ties human freedom so closely to our theoretical and practical knowledge, his notion of a free way of life is extremely fluid. The freedom of a community is constituted by what it knows and what it can do with its knowledge, and will therefore vary from case to case. For example, and here Spinoza uncritically echoes a common early modern European outlook, in a despotism such as the Ottoman Empire, he tells us, the way of life that sovereigns and subjects regard as free is actually premised on such a restricted level of understanding as to be, from Spinoza's perspective, a form of servitude. By contrast, he tells us, the inhabitants of the city of Amsterdam are able to live in a fashion that answers to their richer understanding and protects them from arbitrary power. As he puts it, we happen to have the rare good fortune to live in a republic in which everyone is granted complete freedom of judgment and is permitted to worship God according to his understanding and in which nothing is thought to be dearer or sweeter than freedom. The general point here is that as a community's knowledge grows, the demands that a free way of life imposes on it will alter, so that living freely requires a certain flexibility an openness to the opportunities that new knowledge creates, a willingness to develop the practical expertise to adapt to it, and a wary sensitivity to the vulnerabilities that changing ways of life may generate. As well as guarding its current understanding of freedom, an active community will have to foster its capacity to embrace changes to its ways of life that flow from its evolving knowledge of the environment. Which adaptations it can make and how successfully it can embrace them will in turn reflect its existing understanding, its grasp of what's going on and its capacity to live accordingly. But the more it can resist ossification and rigidity, the better placed it will be to sustain its freedom. One may feel inclined to object at this point that this conception of liberty as a moving target is just too demanding. Even if we accept Spinoza's claim that freedom consists in the absence of arbitrary power, and even if we're willing to agree that as our understanding of the arbitrary powers to which we are subject grows, the project of liberating ourselves changes shape, it may just still seem that Spinoza places too much emphasis upon this single value. Living freely is important, but so is living comfortably within the bounds of tradition. Can't we allow that, despite being subject to the arbitrary power of various features of our environment, we have enough freedom to get along with? We don't need to stretch ourselves to increase it. 
I think that what we feel about this plea will depend on where we're living and who we are. But Spinoza's reply to it is intended to be comprehensive. As we've seen, different kinds of things act or exercise their power in different ways. And humans are distinguished by the fact that their activity consists in understanding. This is our human way of persevering in our being. And it's only by exercising our power of understanding that we live freely. It is, of course, possible for us to passively relinquish our freedom by becoming subject to the arbitrary power of other things. For example, the threats posed by our environment might make us so fearful that we lost all hope of finding a solution to them and just gave up attempting to do so. But in this case, we would not be exercising our own power. Our debilitating passions would mark the extent to which we were being acted on by external things and had lost the power to act for ourselves. To abandon the project of persevering in our being by extending our understanding would therefore be to give up being what we are. And that isn't really within our power. We are, as it were, condemned to live as freely as we can by collectively adjusting ourselves not only to one another, but to our natural environment as well. Where we succeed, we increase our liberty, and where we fail, we lose it. Returning now to our current situation, and here I close, Spinoza urges us to see it not as one where many of our existing freedoms are threatened, but rather as one of increasing servitude. Our subjection to the arbitrary power of environmental forces, combined with our inability to overcome or offset this power, is a significant infringement of our liberty. So rather than worrying too much about how to keep such freedoms as we have, we need to ask ourselves how, in the light of our growing knowledge, we are going to become more free. How are we going to put our knowledge into practice and generate ways of life that will enhance our liberty by reducing our vulnerability to arbitrary environmental powers? In sum, then, the threat we face is not that we may have to abandon our current way of life for one that's less free. The depletion of our liberty is already underway and we are bound to resist it as far as we can. Our task is to make our resistance effective by engaging with nature in a fashion that manifests our understanding and sustains our human power to live freely. Thank you very much. Thank you.